1: Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is analyzing UFO photographs and my guest is Ray Stanford, a UFO researcher, a paleontologist, a former psychic and trance channel. Ray is author of Speak Shining Stranger, The Spirit Unto the Churches, Fatima Prophecy, and Socorro Saucer. He's also been the guest on two previous New Thinking Aloud videos. and I'm going to link to them now because I think you'll find them very useful in appreciating the uh, person who will be interviewed in this video. But I also should mention, and I haven't mentioned it previously for those of you who are following the work with Ray Stanford, that he was also a person I described in In Presence Number 243, in which I talked about the god Horus. You see, Ray has an intuitive connection himself with the god Horus that I explain in that video, and I'm going to link to it now as well. Uh, Of course, you should know that in order to uh, be able to link to the videos directly on YouTube, I'm pretty sure it won't work if, with a mobile device. It'll work with a desktop or laptop computer. I made a special trip to the Washington, D.C. area in order to interview Ray Stanford. It's the only time that I recall I've ever gotten on an airplane just for the purpose of doing some New Thinking aloud interviews. That's how highly I regard this series of interviews. And now I'll switch over to the video that we recorded in Ray's home. Let's start by setting some context, which is that you've actually witnessed, and I've seen the log between 1961, is
0: it? 61? Uh, The the first? Yeah. yeah. Uh, 1956, September 18, 1956.
1: Between 1956 and 1997, you have 50 occasions—51, I think, to be precise—occasions on which you were able to photograph UFOs. That that might seem really amazing to most people, except I'm sitting here in the room with you where there are literally hundreds of fossil imprints, dinosaur prints, that you you have found here in Maryland at a time when people didn't believe there were any.
0: There is a relevance to that uh, comparison. and. Uh, but also, people need to think uh, in this term. And they say, gee, it seems impossible that Ray Stamford should film 30-something. And actually, there are, there are more you didn't mention after that date. It was not only the list you That's saw. but
1: 25 years ago.
0: Yeah, right. Uh, the the thing is that I, I was primed from the time I was nine when I heard the reports of Kenneth Arnold, you know, jumped off a swing in the schoolyard and told the principal's wife, freaked her out. When I grow up, I'm going to find out what these flying saucers are. And when I find out, I'm going to do that research and show the whole world what they are. And oh man, she pranced off and did a military bioface and took off across the schoolyard. Well, that, that primed me too. <laughs> and, uh, thank you, Mrs. Shelton. And then, uh, uh, though as I grew up and got old enough that I could afford to buy me at least a cheap camera, I started carrying a camera. And when you carry a camera to film UFOs, you eventually get tired and say, "Why am I carrying this thing?" And then it makes you well, wait a minute. You better watch the sky, or you're wasting your time. And you can leave the camera home. So you, but you don't leave the camera home, and it primes you, and you start watching the sky. And as you get a little older, you can afford a little better camera. The more expensive camera you're carrying, the more serious and absolutely certain you've got to, you've got to get an opportunity to use that. So you carry it. You don't leave it in your car. You don't leave it at home you carry it with you over your shoulder and uh with a carrier and it um, it gets you watching this is very important people don't realize th- th- that they're not watching an-, an analog to this is when i made my famous uh trackway discovery at goddard space flight center a a uh, astrophysicist uh, told me he said ray he said you know i used to walk every day that it was not raining I walked from my office down to the cafeteria and I walked within five feet of approximately five feet of that big notice track by which you found the whole slab with the discoveries on it. And he said, I, I never saw it. I, I never was aware it was there. And I said, well, look, you're primed to think, to look, to be analyzing what's above us in the, in the sky, beyond the atmosphere, far out there, not down here at your feet where you're walking and asking yourself, what the heck is that? Like I am, and then I think he understood. But uh, that—that you have to be primed, uh, and and most people aren't. They have their hard workaday world, or they have a lot of things on their mind, and don't think about there might be something mysterious going on up there in the sky. I'm different. I think there might be something mysterious under my feet or in the sky.
1: And. It's been that way for you for half a century, much more than half a oh, century. Right.
0: That that is right. You're,
1: as we were saying, your first uh, photograph goes back to nineteen fifty six.
0: Yes, and uh, that that was uh, actually there was a, there was a photograph uh, before that. Uh, there was the one on Padre Island. There was, there was sing- one single successful photograph of the object on Padre Island, where we had uh, state police and and. Uh, local authorities uh, as witnesses and have had affidavits and so on. But um, it was not a spectacular case, and it was just a black and white photograph, although I have computerized a color version of it. The color we saw it is to show people what it looked like, too. But there there was nothing scientifically compared to the things we would end up getting later. Mm -hmm. And the more we saw, the more I got motivated to to get a good camera and learn how to use it. That's important, too. <laughs> you get a camera and you suddenly realize you don't know how to switch it on to telephoto or to get it off a wide angle to where you can get a closer view with telephoto. So you have to prime yourself to know your instrument, know, know what's there at hand that you can use and how to use it in the most efficient way. That's important. People need to educate themselves and think about their instruments and why they've chosen that instrument, what it will do for them, And they should also think about what it won't do for them, so to think, consider a better instrument when they can afford it and get to to buying one.
1: And your twin brother Rex, who later became a, a well-known and respected parapsychologist, was with you and observed uh, these UFOs uh, in your teenage years.
0: Let me mention that he was an identical twin brother too. Yes, and uh, he uh, his degree was in in conditional psychology at the University of Texas, Austin, his PhD, and uh, but then he specialized and became well known for. His parapsychological research, and I think he did a very good job, because I know that he, like me, uh, have a good strain of skepticism interwoven with the willingness to accept that something extraordinary may be happening that we don't really understand or at least completely understand. And so he took that position throughout. I have taken it in relationship to what's in the sky, and he takes it in relationship to what's in 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 the brain, so to speak, going on. But as you know, because you followed some of it, I think he did a super job, and unfortunately, he's no longer with us.
1: It's tragic. He had a brilliant career. I, I first met Rex in 1973 and when I attended my first convention of the Parapsychological Association, and he gave the Presidential Address.
0: Oh really? Well that that's interesting. I didn't know I didn't know that. And I'm glad you were there to tell me.
1: But the two of you co-published a book called Look Up. That's right. And and that was about the uh, numerous sightings that the two of you together and many of your friends were with you witnessed.
0: That's right. Yes. Uh, it was called Look Up and uh what was the uh what, what was the date? 1958. When we wrote that we were in a, a still. Uh, we we had an attitude to try to get new evidence and so on, and so forth. But we were in a very uh, just out of our teens, a subjective mode about this. And uh, uh, I particularly uh, Rex never took to George Adamski's hoaxes very much, but he didn't say he didn't believe them. The but I was mentioned. taken in by this and went out and got to know the guy. Yeah. And uh, and what I got to know though within the next few years. Uh, totally convinced me that he was absolute hoax and his photographs of alleged venusian spaceship and motherships and so forth uh, were were not good and uh, then when he took me down to his basement and actually admitted to me that he had phosphorescent paint which I didn't really he had been using in the uh, to make the smaller craft around the dark uh, black uh, object that he called the mothership uh, the the glow phosphorescent paint and uh, he he almost left me the feeling that he really wanted to, didn't quite want to completely admit, but that he, he kind of liked me and really would like to steer me away from this belief. I can't say for sure that that was his intention at all. I hope it was. I hope he was better than at times I, I thought he might be. But it, in the book, it is infused with the idea of, of space brothers and telepathic messages guiding you to meet them and go aboard their crafts and all this kind of stuff. And we were pretty much, at least I was, pretty much taken in by that. But then after wising up to Adamski and Daniel W. Fry and certain other of the alleged contactees that in my opinion were totally hoaxed from beginning to end, uh, my attitude changed. And I realized the only real solution was to get really good scientific hard evidence which not only photographs of movies uh, color movies hopefully but to use a magnetometer gravimeter a spectrographic camera and uh, and of course audio camera but but so eventually we were able to do all all of that and to get some much better evidence
1: so one of the key findings that you came upon was was that when you look closely at the photographs you can see distortions in the air around
0: that's right, the
1: uh objects that you're photographing
0: well that's right, and uh, uh you learn to uh recognize what even your instruments sometimes are giving you you didn't realize, for example uh the movie camera uh, most movie cameras I've ever used you're seeing the objects, but you're not seeing to the same uh, lens uh, in the same uh, polarity of light as your film is uh, because there's a prism in there, call it a beam splitter, and uh it splits the beam and puts one polarity of light to the eyepiece and one to the film. Well, this enables you to see differently, and but the film also to see differently. But scientifically, this is an extreme advantage that initially I didn't even realize. It's an advantage because in polarized light, which the film is seeing, you're seeing the other half of the the polarity, the vertical contrast with the horizontal, for example. And uh, what you're getting is the potential to see what are called rings due to Faraday rotation. Now, that was something discovered by Michael Faraday that has nothing to do with UFOs. But it has to do with the fact that uh, under the influence of a magnetic field, light can become highly uh, polarized in a way that you need polarized light to see it. And so you can film it, even though your eye might not be seeing it through the eyepiece because of the different polarity of light you're looking at. And I have now beautiful examples of... uh, of the concentric rings around a magnetic light source. And when you get this, in this kind of circumstance where you're using polarity of light, it's indisputable. It's a magnetic field rotating the plane of polarization. And uh, scientists love this. This is the kind of thing we need to communicate to real hard, hard-nosed, let's call it, uh, physical scientists uh, and, and aerospace engineers that you're looking at a technology not a mysterious phenomenon i don't like the term uh, anomalous aerial phenomenon but a, an, an anomalous aerial object from unknown source and that that strong magnetic field when you get so many rings around as we have in some of these examples you know you have an extremely powerful magnetic field but there are also other ways that we film this that that it becomes visible uh, by a different uh, set of physical Phenomena, and we can discuss that if you like. Okay. Okay. Well, here is, here is the, the one that, uh, is, I think, I will be a favorite to most anybody who's looking at this kind of evidence, whether they, even if they're not a scientist, because a lay person can see this too, a non-scientist can see this when you film this, and you can see it with the naked eye. You don't need polarized light to see this, but it's nice to have a good camera to record it, and, uh, it is, the visible magnetic field. Now, the magnetic field is invisible, but on the other hand, these objects are, and and, and I, I can show this in in scientific evidence. Uh, they are themselves magneto hydrodynamic, magneto plasma dynamic, if you prefer, uh, craft. What they do, they electrify the air, high energy electrons, around them, and move that with a magnetic field to their advantage. For example. They can electrify the air in a way in the direction they're going to, with the field effect, the magnetic field effect acting upon the plasma, the electrified air. They can move it around them to a low pressure and they can even bring it back and by a similar method, but it's a little different. I won't go into the technology of it, but they can compress it into a high pressure behind them and a low pressure to very extremely low pressure in front of them, particularly when they project a column of this plasma, as we will talk about today, uh, ahead of them. I mean, this is a, a an incredible, uh, a wonderful thing. But the thing is, you can see this magnetic field. You can see these electrons emitting light uh, as they're acted upon by this magnetic field. And they tend to, uh, when the, the field becomes strong enough, they tend to spread off near the surface, away from the surface, and spread out. And become swirling in the donut-shaped or torus-shaped magnetic field, and it's wonderful because, I mean, it's it, it, so. When you see it, you immediately think of what your grade school teacher showed you when you put a piece of paper over a uh, uh, a magnet, a bar magnet, and then spread a bunch of iron filings out and, and shook the paper, and you, you then saw the shape of the magnetic field due to the iron filings. Well the the analogue of the iron filings to what you're seeing in the sky is the the plasma of the electrified atmosphere which is glowing uh, acting in this donut shaped thing so that that is how you can actually see the magnetic field that itself is invisible you see it by what it confines and moves into this donut shape
1: and and typically you you've been so fortunate to have a large collection of photographs uh, that you yourself have taken often with uh, witnesses in your right. presence, and you have a, a good uh, sense of uh, how to distinguish what might be an authentic UFO from uh, the planet Venus or right. swamp gas or uh, any of a number of alternatives like uh, airplanes and the like.
0: Well, that, that that's right. And, and also, let me mention that my, my most important uh, evidential uh, film, although I have some super important ones from night are my most important ones and scientifically impressive ones are in, in, broad daylight where we don't have to worry about Venus or, or things like that. And, and furthermore, uh, we're interested in things that have a, a large angular size or not a tiny point, but that have enough angular dimension that when you get it on film or now on uh, the digital image, uh, that you can see details of, uh, that are, that are relevant to physicists. And, uh, otherwise, I don't spend a lot of time with, you know, the tiny things that we might see, the ones that are further off, although sometimes they can give you some good data, but it's the ones that close up and give you enough image that you can see details, that, and, and not only the details of the magnetic field, uh, torus, for example, but I have films where you can see details of the construction of the crap, the panels by which it's put together, and the objects that is sometimes a telescope out to other parts of the body of it. You can even, in, in, in um, the uh, case we're going to talk about mainly today you can see the telescope like a like an old telescope where you pull out you can see the joints in the the telescoping rod that they have projected out so no one can say you're you're filming venus or, or jupiter or or um, even a, uh, a a conventional aircraft of any kind including a drone because these things are way beyond drone technology and i filmed them before we ever had anything that was sophisticated to make us even probe about having a drone.
1: And and one of the ways that you analyze these photographs is by using the the kinds of uh, uh, picture corrections that are available to almost everybody these days in their personal computer for enhancing the saturation or or the contrast in order to bring out certain
0: features. Well, that's right. And uh, uh, the thing is, I always point out, after I have the the raw image, I'll show the raw image, uh, I'll say, and this one has been lightly contrasted, this has been medium contrasted, this has been highly contrasted, and then if I want to get a better sense of what the color of these plasmas are there around, or the color of the object, then I will say, I have increased the color saturation. I always explain that, but I also always point out this has not been retouched in any way. This is simple processing. I mean, my uh, my PowerPoint is, is the 2020 version of it. It's very very new. It's it's just the stuff I can do with the simple the simple stuff they've got there. And as we'll see today, it it reveals incredible things about what, for example, the beam ahead from these objects is doing with the the, the magnetic field along it. What's happening with the plasma? That is that is why they're doing it. To create a low pressure in front of the craft, but th- th- that is, that is is the, the wonderful thing that we, we. I don't have to use uh, retouch of any kind. Now, if I ever do use retouch to show some, uh, there there are people that are perceptually challenged that don't see subtle images. If I ever do retouch anything, just to say, look. Look at the raw image and look at the processed image. But now here's a retouch to show you in case you didn't notice. I'll always say that that's important that we be objective and fair and explain to people how we are viewing these.
1: Could you define uh, for our viewers who may not understand what is a
0: plasma? Speaking basically, these are energized electrons uh, in, in a gas. You, you energize the, the the gas with... with uh, Electrically and uh, it becomes a plasma there there. Uh, I won't go into the technicalities of the different kinds of plasma you can get but any of them because they are plasmas can be moved by a magnetic field and uh, This is what is wonderful is that We need to learn to look at alleged UFO photographs uh, and ask ourselves does it show us that there's anything exotic about this? Or is this somebody's concept of what an alien spaceship would look like they carved out of on a lathe or, or some other way, put some objects together? Here's the thing. The fake pictures, and since they're a very clever faker and, and, and try to include these ones they've seen that Ray Stanford and a few other people have have published this kind of thing of evidence, the The thing is you ask yourself, why is there no physics visible Because these things have largely visible physics. They can turn it down to where it might not register with the sensitivity of your camera. But in most cases, when people are describing an object maneuvering around the sky, they should have physics. They should have the plasma. They should have evidence of the magnetic field. And they would also usually have also evidence of subtle, narrow beams being projected at times out for different purposes around and from the object. And uh, I'm not talking about a string holding up an object. I'm talking about an electrified glowing uh, or uh, oddly colored beam that's that's projected. If there is not some exotic physics around this beautiful object you're seeing, you're pretty safe to bet big money that it's a fake. And I don't hesitate to call a fake a fake because George Adamski fooled me as a teenager for a while. But uh, even he got generous and <laughs> at least uh, kind of dropped a few hands uh at, at me, which I, I took at, at face value. But uh, but that that's it. the plasma can the plasma is the valuable part. It it is the most important thing that we can talk about and it, and and the effect of the magnetic field itself aside I like Faraday rotation, which is not plasma itself. But these are the things that ufology needs to be focusing on. We do not need 18,000 anecdotes of people being abducted. Yes, people are abducted. We were abducted at times, even with our mobile laboratory. One case, four hours missing with physical effects afterward on two of us. But this, we, what we, if we want to look at it from the standpoint of the engineer, the physicist, and possible development of technology, we must look at this side, the propulsion side, and ask ourselves, how is this thing moving it? moving in our atmosphere. And we can also ask ourselves, if it uses electrifying the air in our atmosphere, how does it do this in outer space? It's easy. It's easier. Because then they can simply channel all of that plasma into one direction without having to regard the atmosphere as a thruster, as an engine. Now, it's interesting to think about another kind of thruster, too, that has been experimented with uh, in, in the laboratory by NASA. I won't try to go into that. But this is time field propulsion in which in the laboratory I I read a report from NASA in a a, a crude model of this uh, this situation they they did not explain how they did it that's probably secret but they stated that they had compressed a column of time in front of the object and uh, they had had dilated a column of time they made it uh, I'm sorry they, they had increased it and they had decreased it in a column behind them to move slowly and what this does it propels the object even in empty space, and it's stated that if we can develop this at a large-scale size, we can put people inside it to go to Mars, we can go to Mars at a fraction of the time that it will take with rocket, at the kind of speeds we'll use with rocket propulsion. So that we can do that, or we can also use it with plasma thrusters in space so we don't have to worry about an atmosphere. Mm-hmm.
1: We should talk a little bit uh, then about some of the specifics where people can actually see the uh,
0: toroidal forms of the magnetic fields. And first example of the visible magnetic field was on September eighteenth, nineteen fifty-six, in the desert of uh, the high desert of California, and uh, and yet you, you see it years later in a laboratory. Not not talking about UFOs, but talking about using uh, magnetoplasma dynamics or magnetohydrodynamics for propulsion. So that that's where they have to look if they want to see. They don't look to the kookzines and the things that people are voice channeling and so on and so forth. I'm sorry. I mean, I did a lot of voice channeling in my youth too. There can be some truth in there, but there can also be a lot of fiction. Look to science. Science is laboring hard. Some are doing better jobs than others, but look to science and to experiments in the laboratory, if you want to understand the physics of what I've been filming in the sky for all these more than 50 years.
1: Well, let's start with that image that you're discussing, the one from 1956. What kind of camera did you have then?
0: Basically, it didn't require anything sophisticated. I don't know if that camera was shooting. It didn't need to see polar, have polarized light, though, to see the magnetic field. You can look directly in both polarities of light or either, and can see this magnetic field when plasma is active in it.
1: Now, I'll admit, when I look at some of these images, just as when I look at some of these fossils uh, here, I don't always see the things that your trained eye can see. Right.
0: Well, that's why you need to train your eye. Yeah. That's why well, you need to. Um, well, you, In the tracks, you have to go... To the books about dinosaur anatomy, which we know only from skeletons, but you look at the skeletal structure of the feet or the hands, the front feet or the back feet, uh, and uh, uh, and then you you transfer this to what you see in the hardened um, prints that they made in mud or, or wet sand and so forth. From in this case, locally around here, one hundred ten to one hundred twelve million years ago, and uh, in, in in likewise, you won't apply that to through so-called UFO research, you need to look at the research in plasma physics to understand it. Even when the physics had nothing whatever to do with UFOs, but just understanding how we can control plasmas in in, in the atmosphere. And the only way we have is is, uh, the the most basic, direct, and and most easy way is by a, a strong magnetic field that will manipulate the plasma
1: some of your best pictures were actually taken from the air while you're uh, on a commercial airline flight.
0: correct that's right the uh the first uh really tr- the most thrilling one was on brandon flight 9 on december 12 1977 and i can't tell off the top of my head where that flight was it was from somewhere up in the northeast toward dallas fort worth or somewhere, and uh, uh, the, uh, uh, and and this, I have very good interface and information from the airline and the pilots and, and so on and so forth on. And we were at 39,000 feet with we cruise altitude. I took this film, and I don't recall that I even had the chance to see it myself. I was a friend of Alan Heineck. I called Alan and I said, look, I got this film. I know it's got to be good because of what I saw uh you know right out the airliner window and at times objects got so close to the plane i had to go back to wide angles to the sides of the window because you get in telephoto you get in too close to it and uh, but uh, i would go back when they get closer to the plane but here's the thing i took that film to alan heinig's home and in his living room with another phd astronomer dr elaine Hendry, elaine henry uh, they projected this back and forth. Now we didn't have the equipment there to to stop, frame it, and look at the frames, and, and certainly in that stage '77, uh, 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 we didn't have the equipment to to digitize and study it like we would like to now. But at that time, they projected it back and forth and made measurements based upon uh, stable points and the edge of the airline window and clouds various things. Uh, what you see frame by frame and study in the changes, this is where you do your science. Not in uh, gee whiz and running the movie, Ooh, I saw a UFO, when you can't see the individual frames and in what is happening in this high-speed physics. But by studying the individual frames one by one and seeing the changes, then you understand. You begin to understand or try to understand the physics. They are the first people because they're the people they can help me, who has no PhD, understand this i owe my understanding of it to science and to physicists and uh, not to the people out there like to put down UFO research. Since you
1: mentioned that you don't have a PhD, and yet your identical twin brother became a professor of parapsychology, I think we ought to point out to our viewers that you won the first prize in the Texas State Science competition as as a teenager statewide. What you were developing at that point were four stage solid-state rockets.
0: I had always dreamed of the idea of going into space. And when Collier's magazine in the uh, in the 50s there came out with a series talking about even building a big space shuttle. You've seen a photo of a painting I did even showing this inspired by the Collier's article. But this inspired me uh, since I didn't understand how UFOs propelled, though I was very interested, I knew that how the rockets were propelled. And so I began to design and build Solid fuel. I couldn't afford to build liquid fuel rockets. That gets much more expensive. But I built some good-sized solid fuel rockets, that you've seen the pictures of them. And, uh, in fact, if you'll remind me upstairs, I'll show you two of the uh, the, the blown-out engines that uh, when they exploded on the thing that I have got the, the engines from. Yeah, I presented my research on this. I called it Experiments with the Multiple-Stage Pencils of Rocketry. I presented it as a scientific paper at the state meeting of the Texas Junior Academy of Science, that means that you're high school age, and um, and uh, and they don't they didn't have a category for research with rockets, but they certainly had a category in physical science. And I re- took the top award in the state. I've showed you the, the little Texas pin with the scientific emblems on only the gold pin that they they gave me as my award for first place in the state of Texas statewide. This is not local; it's statewide. So uh, people can't claim. I'm not scientific, after all. I've published teen scientific papers on my paleontological discoveries, and one of them, I have a letter for the head of of Nature, stating that it was one of the most read scientific papers of 19 uh, of 2018. Uh, and he tell he tells the statistics; it was extremely, and I had no negative criticism whatsoever, just praise and interest in this at a very high level, but this involves a field that is much more earthy than UFOs, but requires careful observation and beyond that, the ability to deduce what the shape you're seeing in the ancient rock means, to interpret it. And and, and this has been analyzed and looked at now by hundreds and hundreds of, of people into what is called paleoethnology, the study of ancient traces. Nobody disagrees they all concur so my science is still there even though i don't have a phd behind my name
1: well in fact if i recall correctly ray you you dropped out of college beca- because as best i can figure out your mind was just working too fast in too many different directions to
0: to be able to sit through college courses well actually I enjoyed my college courses, but to tell you the truth, the course I just, that I uh, enjoyed most was my high school physics, which was taught by a retired college professor, uh, I, I almost can call his name at the beginning of his, at this moment, but uh, the thing was, as Rex said, he went through and got his Ph.D. and had three college physics courses on his way to his Ph.D. in psychology, believe it or not. But he said, Ray, The college course, the the course where I learned most, and the most difficult course of all four, the high school and the three in the University of Texas, was the one in high school. And Turner Physics, Turner Ferguson was the the retired professor's name, and I, I, I deeply appreciate how much he learned me to do and understand about physics and how to use it. So I certainly don't claim a Ph.D. in physics or anything else But uh, it meant a tremendous amount because he taught me how, he helped me with already I had a strong tendency to analyze, not just look at, but to want to understand. But that enabled me to understand more deeply, to see uh, mathematically how things were happening. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, back to the Braniff uh, picture. That you took, flying at thirty-nine thousand feet, if I recall correctly, you can see in in that particular image both the uh, toroidal magnetic uh, forms that uh, are there around the object, and also the shadow of the object on the clouds below.
0: Yes, there are shadows on the clouds because there was a cloud layer below. We we're at thirty-nine thousand feet. I'm not sure of the level of the cloud layer. I know that. It, it was not any higher than 20,000 feet, so there was a nice long distance to protect sunlight. The one I showed you, uh, actually, uh, there were numerous kinds of objects, by the way, that this granny, as I call it, was either, to use a Valerian term, possibly generating, but I think was probably launching. There were incredible numbers of types of UFOs, of which I have some remarkably detailed images, some of which you've seen. And uh, uh, and yes, there are shadows on the cover. The one that I... Uh, Will be uh, aiming us to see here uh, is uh, important in, in this respect. The, top, the, the it was a, a discord object that w- that had another rather phallic looking object docking in the magnetic vent, plugging in down in the middle of it, where you actually have to to dock because the plasma is swirling in the torus around it you can't get in the swirling plasma and dock an object <laughs> you tear up your, what you're trying to dock with as well as the object that's trying to dock and uh, i've got the film of this well the it, it's ordered where they it's kind of edge on with the, the disc it's docking with and above the top of it is going to be the most electrified here the most plasma is going to be concentrated there much more then below, because that's where it has to really grab the atmosphere and move it around it to be at low pressure to keep it up there. And it's even adding the mass when the other object knocks to it. But fortunately, you can see, I went back to wide angle for that. And you can see both sides of the aircraft window. And there's the streak of sunlight. And I, and I do an overlay. you know, see, I do an overlay showing the parallel rays and see how from the top of the, where this, all this strong refraction above the, the, uh, the disk object is occurring, you can actually follow down and see it beautifully projected on the cloud layer below. I mean this is physics to the nth degree. I mean it's enough to make any sincere physicist that wants to look at this just go bonkers wild with thrill because it's right there. And and it it it'd be easy enough to find out by the way on that day, approximately even what the altitude of the cloud layer was. But it's obviously you will see in the, in the image it's way down there so we had a nice long projection and uh, uh this is the kind of thing that 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 we need to look at and look at in depth and analyze and that's what i'm good at is, is because uh as a kid i i always ask myself any weird rock i saw i i would go ask my poor mother who didn't know a thing about <laughs> about rocks but uh mommy how did this strange rock form well, the, one, the only one she could tell me how I'd farm was petrified wood. She could tell me a little bit about that. But uh, I picked up all these rocks from beneath the railroad ties on the railroad track, which was a, a short a half block from our house, but uh, in a little railroad town, Odom, Texas, where I grew up in coastal Texas. But that tendency to want to understand and to ask myself, how how did this form? That, that got into me, and it, it, it soaked into my ufology. It soaked into my seeing things on the ground and saying, wait a minute, why is that shaped that way? Is that a track? And uh, what kind of track, what kind of animal made it? But I ask the same thing about these objects in the sky. And I'm learning a lot about these objects and what properties they have and don't have. And I call this real ufology. I get a little impatient with seeing people with PhDs paraded before the media as a UFO expert when they've done none of this kind of analysis in most cases. Some have done some, thank God, but that uh, uh, I'm appreciative of. But a person that is a UFO expert based on how much they know about UFOs, not how much they would like to know, but how much they know. Well, if they want to know, let me show them where I learned it in my films. My films are able of giving this kind of knowledge. And um, it, uh, I, I want people to, to come and see this, but I want scientists. I don't want a lay person to come here and, you know, and, and fill me with their stories of being abducted and so on and so forth. I, I, I mean, I've had that myself when you've got four hours, you know, and this kind of stuff. Uh, I, will want, I want to talk with people that can help me even further understand more. I mean, I've got phenomena that, uh, when I, when I photographed a UFO in broad daylight at Goddard Space Flight Center, disc is, is Ed Jones, beautiful magnetic field visible. But what bothers me, is the edge-on view up above it, There's you've, you've seen it. Uh, there, there, there's an image of the object rotated about 90 degrees where you see it as if you're seeing the longest axis of radial symmetry of the disk. And you can see, you can like you can see down below, but much clearer, the, the construction panels. But I don't, what I want to know is physics, how does that get that image up there? Well, the object that I'm watching and photographing is oriented down here, edge-on. Why is that image at right angles and magnified up there above in the magnetic vent. That I can't understand. If there's somebody out there that's a physicist that knows that, that sees this, please contact me and uh, help me understand.
1: Well, that uh, is a fascinating image, uh, but I want to jump back to uh, the fact that you've also received credible UFO photographs from other researchers. For example, the famous UFO photographs from McMinnville, Oregon, and you've been able to apply the same analysis there. It's not just your own UFOs.
0: And this is what gets to me. Famous naval physicist Bruce McAfee uh, provided me, in fact, with the high, uh, near first-generation or first-generation copies of the McMinnville photographs that I use for analysis. But what bothers me is that Bruce published, talking, trying to talk about physics and this is a real object and so on and so forth, he, he bought into it too. It's real. It's real. In the, the second photograph, Mrs. Trent says, he came by and said, all of a sudden its edge tilted up where you begin to see the bottom of it. She said, and then a, 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 a terrible, or some word I think began with a T, blast of air hit us. Well, that's very clear. The moment I saw that, wait a minute. And boy, when I just hit the contrast button just a little and you've seen it, there's a beautiful flow uh down out of the what would be the lower magnetic vent, and it comes down and it expands and it and it it, it comes inside down and it hits the ground. And when that when when it this blast then hits the ground and bounces toward Mrs. Trent and I think her husband too, if I remember correctly, uh, you can see that. You can even see the evidence it hit the ground in the fact that on the the downflow above, they're larger right before it would have hit the ground. You actually see bubble patterns, disturbance patterns, along, which indicate a feedback where it hit the ground, and you got shock phenomena coming back from where this high speed hit the ground. And it did have high speed, as she said. It was a terrible blast of air. And all you have to do, anybody can take the raw picture that I provide there and do it themselves on their home computer with today, and uh, maybe on their other iPhone, <laughs> and uh, and uh, you can see this blast for yourself. And uh, not only that, but when you when you do image processing, without any retouch whatsoever, both in both photos of the McMenville object, they are producing the thing that most UFOs do in broad daylight. You, you can photograph it. It's subtle. They produce ghost image, multiple, Im- multiple images of themselves. And that is occurring in both of the McMinnville photographs. I've got them and can show them. And uh, it's very important. These are things that conclusively prove that back there in those days, and even today, I guarantee you we have no technology that will produce that multiple imaging phenomenon. And uh, I don't know when the McMinnville photographs were, but they're way back, and uh, at least fifty years ago, I think. And or they're about, and uh, it's just wonderful that you can see these things. The object, if you look closely, does is shouting extraterrestrial technology. It can't be terrestrial technology, mm-hmm. and there's the evidence right there, even though you can't see occupants aboard the craft. Well,
1: there's multiple images suggest some sort of, uh, to me and my my naive way of looking at it, it, it might have to do with some sort of uh, digital processing through time.
0: Well, yes, this may well be. It may be that it is appearing at various places, and and through this compressed time phenomenon, where time is passing vastly faster than we perceive things normally, uh, it, it's as if it pulses or pauses for a moment and then moves on there 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 are faint or no images in between and then you get the next image sometimes you can make out faint images between it really suggests to me for example an object relative to us external observers if i understand it correctly in compressed time when you get it compressed a certain amount of time it may end up looking transparent to us i'm not going to try to go into the exotic physics of that but um, but anyway how whatever maybe i'm wrong but yes i agree with you it sounds like there is a compressed time phenomenon or a time manipulation phenomenon going on and most of this we don't see now some people say my gosh it was right there and suddenly it was right there oh i've got films of that too where just where you see uh, the beginning and you see the second one where, where it appeared uh, uh and sometimes almost as clearly as the other one but where was it in between it's just so fast that the light that had already hit the film had already saturated enough that you don't get that that fast image in between but it's there the evidence is there but ufo researchers have been too busy entertaining the media and 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 talking about allegedly with no no real good evidence uh crash ufos and uh and uh wasn't that just getting hung up, up on the abduction question since yes people are abducted but we don't know what is really what the motivation is. Some will claim, oh, this was nine. Some people may claim they're planning things that are control us. And I don't know what they did to us or anybody else. But we're not going to get the answers easily. But in the physics end, it's sitting right there in front of our semi-blind noses. And uh, we've got, uh, My hope my research encourages visual physicists who have eyes to see I'm speaking both literally and figuratively eyes to see to look at this for the exotic wonderful things that these films from other people as well as mine I mean I can take these things when the, when the object is real and I take these pictures and put them in the same process I put mine to you will see that these exotic things are there it's not unique to Ray it's just Ray's unique to to having discovered it and, and, and having uh, developed to the level where I can show it and show it, uh, share it with others.
1: Now, it's very important, I think, when you have uh, a, a picture that is, let's say, unique in your collection, to see that there are similar pictures and that
0: you, other people you, you know, you have. You've seen this in some of my slides. I'll show it just sitting right there. And it, it's amazing. And uh, even uh, in a wonderful beam, the, the, the series of objects, uh, most of which were of the same type, uh, these beamhead objects of 10... Uh, 05-85, uh, down in the Bayfront in Corpus Christi, mm-hmm. there was a picture, an infrared photograph, released by the Navy. You know what I'm talking about. I think it was filmed off the coast of California, yes. probably, but it definitely shows in profile. Although it's very blurred and just black and white, it it looks like a piece of junk compared to the beam ahead images. Where the, my best ones were, some where you can see the the front of the the dome more with the with the other it runs the other way where the the beam emitters... Pointing more out toward you. And uh, when you put that beside you, can see it's the same object, except that the Navy photo is laughable. It's so bad. I mean, it's, it's, it's junk. But the thing is, it's sad about it. I know that the Navy and the U.S. Air Force has a lot better, but they're putting that out, which I believe in a public relations front because they know everybody and their dog are carrying an iPhone these days and with a camera in it. And they're going to stuff going to be cropping up. And they've got to not pretend to be in total say, Yeah, we got a little something. Yeah, we saw this and we saw that. Well, anyway, uh, I, I will show people what the object really looks like, not that blurred black thing they chose to publish. But it's the same object. Mm-hmm. And nobody who's seen the two together denies it. They admit it virtually has to be the same object, but just so blurred out with pure black and fuzz from infrared that you can't see it. I'm to have it in, in pure Corpus Christi daylight, daylight. Mm-hmm.
1: So you you took the beam ahead image. Where were you at the time?
0: Well, I was in Corpus Christi. I, I was uh, I had uh, gone there to take take my two eldest children, uh, a boy and a girl, uh, down to uh, Corpus Christi, uh, and uh, uh, because they, they were their their mother had decided to divorce me and to marry a, a, a man uh, that was moving them to Indiana. We drove down to a place along the bayfront called the e b Cole Park, and just north of it and there there this was a sunshiny, beautiful blue sky day. There were scads of people out in the park that I'm sure got pictures of what I filmed, but the thing is, just north of there, they had built a place called uh, that was a curved water breakwater they put a big arc of uh, huge chopped rocks from somewhere I don't know where they got, them. and they built a concrete. Walkway on that curving around. It's a it's a breakwater. You could park little boats in there, and they, when you get a storm with waves coming in, it'd be protected. So it's called a breakwater. But I decided we'd take my kids on a walk out there. Well, there was a, already a, a, a nice gentleman and his wife, and their probably twenty one year old daughter. The, the his wife and the daughter were out on the pier, and he was he had fold out chair sitting at the on the sand before you get onto the pier. So my kids we decided to walk out on the pier. Well. I looked down and I saw that at some point there had been some pretty waves and some water over the concrete walk and there was algae. And I was worried about my kids slipping because if they slip on that, they not only hurt themselves in the concrete, they'd probably fall under the sharp rocks on either side of it down below and really get injured and maybe have to go to the hospital. And uh, they're supposed to move to Indiana on, on Monday. And uh, so I'm watching that and trying to make sure they don't step into the wet algae. And simultaneously, my four-year-old and my six-year-old, the daughter's the older one, uh, they simultaneously, bless their hearts, both of them, said, Daddy, what is that strange object passing over? Uh, or up there, maybe, they said. And uh, uh, here was the first, of what we saw, anyway, of a procession of the same kind of beam head objects, as I called them, and you can imagine what I did at that point. I, uh, forgot about the LJ and got up my camera. Now, I didn't have as much film as I wished because on a trip out west, passing through southern Tucson, they, right past the Davis-Monthan Air Force Base, uh, we had seen and, uh, and I had filmed a mothership projecting some kind of a weird bluish beam effect downward. I got a movie of that until it left. Uh, or, Anyway, I got a movie of it, and so I took a part of my film, so I didn't have as much film as I would have liked. What I didn't know, when the kids pointed this out, is there was a procession of these objects, of these same kind of discoidal objects, except the last one, which was different. I ran out of film before the last one, uh, but the, the, the ones that were all alike, I got films of several different ones of them, and uh, the, the, it was something I had never seen before. Uh, at least knowingly, I never noticed it. Understand these are not aerodynamic objects. Let me undersign that and put it in capital red italics. These are not aerodynamic objects. They are magnetoplasma dynamic objects. They do not fly normally edge-on. They fly with their flat front dome side, uh, uh not, not, not opposite than dome side, forward. In the direction of travel, their axis of radial symmetry pointing into the direction of travel, so it's anti-aerodynamic. That would give more resistance in any other direction if they were aerodynamic, but they have a structure on that bottom. The other side is the dome and some pretty structures, which which you will see in the picture I'm going to let you use here for this presentation. But um, they on, on the underside there's a tower-like structure that generated this beam, this narrow. Beam of plasma ahead, and some say, "Well, how do you know it's plasma? Well, you can see the solid structure, but in pulses, it pulses off this solid tower. At the end of this tower, it pulses this narrow beam. Well, when you see the picture, even the black and white—I'm not black and white—the the, the, the raw colored picture, unprocessed—you will be able to see that beam out there. But when it goes to just into more and more contrast, and then, boy, when I hit where you can see those better than we can receive the tonal gradients in blue with the sky and the beam being rather bluish. When you go into false color, depending on density, oh my God. I mean, physicists just go wild. Uh, and uh, what you see this plasma doing ahead of this object, and, and it it and this beam itself has pulses within the beam which you can see the pulse fronts and the different pulse waves along the beam.
1: Well, I think the important thing here is what you call the beam ahead right. and, and the technology that that implies.
0: That, this is the thing. I realized this was important. So when I got back to Austin, I, I took the, the, had the film project of course, and then I took and I made a series of frame prints from this. I was aware at that point that you don't want to go projecting the little Super 8 millimeter movie film too much because if you get any wear on the sprockets and it happens to slip a little bit, sometimes it'll slip out and track right across your f- a bunch of film frames and damage. And um, I didn't want to do that. So I individually, on a light table, shot the individual series, mini-series of frames showing these beams and projections of this beam wonderfully. These are the kind of things that I showed immediately. I was so thrilled... I, I, my kids were were gone by that time. And I contacted, uh, uh, one of the early persons I contacted was Chris Lambright, who suddenly wrote, has re- written a book called uh, uh, Ex-Descending, I believe, if I'm correct. And uh, uh, and he, he was thrilled and had it been with me and really enthusiastic about this all the years. And then the next person I contacted was a fellow that was just finishing his master's degree in aerospace engineering at the university of texas i've known him since he was getting his bachelor's degree there and he was very interested in this i said you gotta see this and uh, he came over and he was thrilled uh, the, the, now understand I did not project the movie for fear of damaging but a scientist wants to see the changes the individual and the close-up you don't see that in projecting a movie on the screen but he was thrilled so he then went up to Rensselaer to work on his Ph.D. And he, he told his professor about this film because he knew that professor was involved in researching magneto, a dynamic aerodyne with the U.S. government, with the Air Force. And um, he knew this. He said, you've got to see what Ray's got there because this will show you something more. And Professor Lake Maribo L E I K in my Bill, came down, bless his heart, and he took the time. He took multiple days here, multiple days, studying this and looking at this and talking about this. And when he left, in the last day he left, the last two days he left, a total of three times, he thanked me. He said, "I want to thank you for this week, giving your government." a quantum leap through the atmosphere and into space. Now, the second time he said that, or maybe the last, I think it was probably the second time, he added something, yeah, he said, having said that, I'm embarrassed to ask something of you. He said, so he they were, they were working on, the government at that time was already working on Magnihan and Magnihan, but they had not thought of the beam ahead thing, okay, but he said, we have a problem. Maybe you can give me the answer," he said. "I'm embarrassed to ask you this, considering what you've already given us." He said, "We know how to build it." He meant not with the beam had yet, but but we don't know how to land it. And I said, "I know why you don't know how to land it. If you open that landing gear out of the place where they should be, the maximum distance from the from the axis of radial symmetry, as you would on a a a." Uh, aerodynamic vehicle it would be okay but you would be opening inside the magnetic torus i said the, here's what you have to do you have to do what they do to land it you have to la- open it inside the magnetic the hole of the donut not into the donut he said my gosh i don't know why i never thought of that and i said well <laughs> anyway i did i said look let me show you something and I, I showed and you i showed you a slide from it in, in my name there was an article and it was a multi-witness case if i remember correctly anyway there was an article in which the witnesses saw the craft land and they saw the occupants and uh, the, uh, uh, the the thing is that uh, here, here's the craft landed and it's not out there on the edge as if it were an aerodynamic they're opened in clearly worse I said look where they got He said it's in, it is in the magnetic vent like you say. saying I said of course see what happens if they open it in the magnetic vent the plasma hits it and you get all kinds of incredibly powerful shockwave phenomena in the plasma and it could destroy not only the craft and the occupant they may destroy that, both the occupants and the craft but guess what so anyway he thanked me that final third time and they left in the middle of the night and headed up to Rensselaer the next day or two, my friend who had told Professor Mirabeau about this, he went to uh, he said we got he said we got there." He said it was it was after two: thirty in the morning. I think he said maybe three down I'm ship. He said it was in the wee hours anyway. Uh, and uh, he said, "Professor Mirabeau, he said, and I followed him, ran upstairs and went to the electronic drafting machine and drew the schema for opening the landing gear inside the magnetic vent and sent it immediately to the Aerospace Technical and Intelligence Center of Dayton, Ohio you know, at four or five that morning wow, they were desperate, they must have been pretty near there building a thing but not knowing how to land it I don't know, I mean, they had to do the landing gear though yet. but um, I don't know where they were, I can't really say that
1: well so there's two issues here let can you explain why projecting a plasma beam ahead of the craft in the direction it's moving is so significant
0: sure the beam projects ahead impulses and of course they get weaker as you go but they, they they're expanding and it has its own magnetic it, the, the, the current streamer in this beam has its own magnetic field but it, and and it's expanding and you when you see the processing, of it. you see the contour of the magnetic field ahead of each of these pulses. What it's doing it's electrifying there, getting a spinning at a torus. And you'll even see in in some of the pictures the the pattern in the torus. They they look like the the panels on a turbine uh, a jet turbine to to move a jet. But they they are these are plasma blades, so to speak. And they what they're doing they're circulating electrically. And rotating that plasma where it's expanding out what does this do when you grab the atmosphere and expand it out around this beam you're creating the pressure along the. De, you're decreasing the pressure along the beam you're decreasing as it expands as, as, as this magnetic field expands more and more as you see in the picture getting until they finally just streams right around the object you'll see that you've seen it when that, the the pressure is incredibly low in front and also there was an effect in high, behind that we believe was closing it and actually creating it high pressure. But the thing it was creating, this is what thrilled Professor Marabos much. They, they saw how to make this magnetic, uh, plasma dynamic field. They knew how to produce it to produce basic lift. But this makes it incredibly more efficient when you can create a, a relative vacuum in a column in front of it. It gets stronger and stronger the closer you are to the vehicle. It just wants to move right along that that column. So this is the the benefit of the beam ahead.
1: And, and if I understand correctly, it can move faster than the speed of sound through that uh, decompressed air uh, without creating a sonic boom.
0: That's right. It does not. Because the sonic boom is merely the compressed shockwave from moving faster than the speed of sound when you don't have anything to move it out of the way except the craft pushing forward, and so it creates a sonic boom. This is, this is the mystery of why UFOs don't produce sonic booms normally. I mean, there are circumstances where they may be changing this way. You might on a rare occasion, but normally, from the start, the skeptics said, these things can't be moving as fast as you said, or you claim the radar, because there was no sonic boom. This is the reason. It's very simple. There is a relative vacuum in front that that that, uh, that gets stronger as it gets near the craft, and 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 uh, and you you and it's moving along that uh, relative vacuum, not a true full vacuum, but moving along that vacuum. So you have no reason. You're not pushing the shock wave. Okay, and then
1: there's the question of the landing gear. Where, where what you're suggesting is the landing gear extends from the center of the craft rather than from the perimeter is
0: Well they they're not really from the center they're a little out because you have to have detached different distances but they're they 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 are sure to keep it within the the outside of the the donut of the uh, the, the word is torus the magnetohydrodynamic torus They're, they're outside the periphery of that where it's spinning. So they, they operate just in, inside of it, but not, not daring to touch it. And that that's where they 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 uh, open out
1: well ray stanford once again a magnificent conversation i want to thank you so much for sharing uh your years decades of investigation with me and with the viewers of new thinking aloud
0: it's time that the the public got a chance to hear more about this hard evidence this is what i call hard evidence it's i mean the kind of evidence that scientists can can really get get into and this is what it thrills me to share so thanks for for inviting me
1: my pleasure and for those of you listening or watching thank you for being with us